0: Let's pray. Father, be with us uh, this morning. May our worship of you begin even now and extend uh, through the rest of the day. This is your day that is devoted to you, to confession our sin and the rejoicing in our forgiveness in your Son. Amen. Amen. The first page of your outline has some good quotes. Some are sort of deep, profound theological things. We're quoting from our new denominations, uh, Confession of Faith. So in your outline and you see footnotes that have TFC, that stands for um, Trinity Fellowship Churches and then it's the part of the confession. So the very first one is a good summary of what happens on Sunday morning. The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord as well as the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the giving of tithes and offerings, expressions of fellowship and Christian affection, stirring up one another to love and good works, and the exercise of spiritual gifts are all part of the religious worship of God. These are to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humbling with fastings and thanksgivings on special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner." It's a great summary. Uh, I won't read these poems and these other quotes, but you should, um, if it gets boring at some point this morning, just start looking at those, and I think <laughs> they'll be edifying. There's a, great, there's a great quote from That Hideous Strength by Lewis, which I feel like is one of the great um, sort, of, sort of emotional encapsulations of what happens in corporate worship. There, um, there's a, um, a poem by George Sepphoris, who is a Greek poet, uh, primarily active in the uh, first half of the 20th century. There's a poem, famous poem by Philip Larkin called Church Going. This is the last stanza of that. Philip Larkin was no friend of the church, but this is a, this is a good poem. Uh, there's a part here from uh, Calvin's commentaries. And then I'll actually, I will read this from Zechariah 7 to 5 through 6. When you fasted and mourned, was it for me that you fasted? When you come into church on Sunday, when you lift your hands, when you bow your knee, when you sing, when you take the Lord's Supper, is it for God that you are doing these things and not for one another or to keep up appearances or because your body is somehow on autopilot? This is a profound and urgent question that we should always ask ourselves. I have three goals for this morning. One is to remind us that everything we do on Sunday morning has its source and charter in Scripture, not in the accident of history or personal preference. That's a reminder, and it's also an encouragement. Children, someday you're going to look around and you're going to think, why do we do these weird things? No one else does them. We do them because the Lord God commands us to do them. Second, I want us to orient our worship Toward an undomesticated regal precision. This is the oddest of my goals for the morning. Um, we shouldn't let our worship uh, be sloppy. It should be precise. We shouldn't let our worship be sort of, um, sort of just middle class suburban going through the motions. Everyone is in golf shirts and sneakers, with a coffee cup in one hand and a kind of a hand outstretched like that, in the other. It should be. This should be something kind of wild and feral about our worship, yet at the same time precise and regal because we are servants of the King. Lastly, I want us to be encouraged with the knowledge that heaven hears and acts at the instigation of our worship as we meet in Christ's name and plead his promises back to him. This is something that is often overlooked when I enter worship. The outline that you're going to see is that God speaks, we obey, and that heaven reacts. And I think it's, it's, it's common in our minds to be a very aware of the first, that God is speaking to us. It's very aware to all of us that then we respond, that back and, that back and forth. But we often forget, to, I think, to our discouragement that God, in fact, Reacts and heaven hears, not simply in a passive way where he kind of pats us on the head and says, good job, you did it again, another Sunday on the books, but mysteriously that heaven reacts, that God is enthroned on our praises, that God who needs nothing, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if he needed something, he wouldn't ask us for it, somehow benefits from our praise. I do not understand how this works. He does not need us. He does not need us to be glorified. He was perfectly glorious and perfect and complete in heaven before the creation of the earth. And yet, somehow, somehow, we make what was already at its limit even greater. Be encouraged by that. All right, so the outline God speaks. Remember, let's keep our outline in our mind. God speaks we obey, or we could say we answer. And third, heaven responds. God speaks by summoning us. One of my favorite authors uh, was a woman of the last century, and I was reading a biography of her, and she was sort of this this, this old woman near the end of her life, and she was counseling this younger writer. And this younger writer, she, she felt like he was starting to compromise on the kind of writing he was doing, that he was just trying to please his readers, kind of give the people what they wanted. And she told him, you do not write for any camp or audience or readership or critic. You write because you owe God an answer. And I've, the moment I read that, I thought, well, I worship because I owe God an answer. But guess what? If you worship because you owe God an answer, that means that God asked you a question. If there's an answer that we are required to, that means that God has demanded something of us. So first of all, when you woke up this morning, it was not any morning, this was Sunday morning, and you should hear God summoning us to his holy place. Not to get weird about where locations are and things like this, God is omnipresent, but he is specially here when his people gather. So he summons us to worship. Um, The footnotes are helpful maybe on, more on your own, or if you get bored, you can kind of glance down on there, and you can, And the, the ones that are in bold are New Testament ones. Some of us might feel a little uncomfortable about, late, you know, ladenning so much of our worship theology and things that sort of had to do with the temple or the Old Testament. I would love to talk to you about why I think that's actually okay in many respects, but if you are a little nervous about that, then just look at the ones in bold, and those are ones from the New Testament. All right, he summons us, God summons us by his very creation. This is what Paul is talking about when he was at the Areopagus. And he says, he, he's the, all, the, the, the pagans are desiring to worship, because you don't even know what you're desiring to worship, but you feel this need, this burden to worship something. In the Philip Larkin poem on your front page, it says, since someone will always be forever, will, will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious. People have a longing for the divine. So that is something that is in all of us. Come, all right, but beware. Some people come for only that reason. So beware of those who are simply seeking sort of to fill that God-shaped hole. Scripture has called you here this morning. We don't need to belabor that point, but the Word of God tells us to come and worship. Discipleship has told you to come and worship. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, God's said, make disciples of all the nations. It teaches them, in Romans 1, it says, teaching them the obedience of the gospel. So if your parents knocked on your door this morning and said, get up, it's time for church. That's not a strange thing. That's not a mundane thing. That was in fact, Matthew 28 happening where your parents are discipling you because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ and He has given it to your parents to bang on your door at 7.30 on Sunday mornings. What's more, even if you are an adult, or or imagine sort of the hypocrite throughout sort of Christian culture. Guess what? That person who comes to church just out of the motions because he knows it's the right thing to do or because he feels pressure by society or culture, don't look down on that too much. We spend a lot of time um, being worried about hypocrites, and we should be. But we should also consider that hypocrisy is the virtue, Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, all right? So it's only in a Christian society where you can have hypocrites, okay? So be aware that, again, people coming to church because of a Christianized society is, in fact, that gospel seed working forward. Then lastly, the best one of all, the Holy Spirit has drawn you. Uh, one of the, <clears throat> So I'll, I will look um, at one of my footnotes there. I believe it's. Uh, let's look at Second Chronicles thirty twelve. Second Chronicles thirty twelve says, "The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord." And preceding this, was Hezekiah gives this great sort of summoning pronouncement to all the land to come and worship. And guess what? Did did creation call them to worship? Yes. Did scripture, did the word of Hezekiah call them to worship? Yes. Did discipleship, maybe some peer pressure, cause them to worship? Yes. But then the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to come. That's the best one of all. So if if the Holy Spirit has drawn you, again, revelation, the spirit and the bride say come. Who is the bride? The bride is the church. The church has said come this morning and worship. The spirit and the bride has said come. So here we are. The summoning. All right, number two. God speaks by instructing us to worship. He instructs us by explicit command and by scriptural example and by nature and good and necessary consequence. By explicit command, this is an obvious one. So we've got some... Um, actually, so first of all, on there's a footnote six for instructs how to worship. There's a great uh, section here uh, from our confession which draws a lot in the language of the Westminster um, about we do not, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by him alone and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not worship according to the imagination and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any other way not prescribed by his holy scripture. So the technical theological term for that is the regulative principle. It simply means we worship the way God tells us to and in no other way. All right. Um but uh so that so so by explicit command that would be where perhaps like in 1st Corinthians 11 through 14 the apostle Paul tells us this is how you should worship and so we do that Hebrews uh 10:25 do not um do not forget the gathering of the saints I forget the exact language it's basically the the come to church command all right but then there's also a lot of instances in which Just the example of Scripture. So that's, again, where we're looking at Acts, where there's a lot of history there and just what the disciples and the apostles and the we're we're all doing. Now, it's also where uh, the Old Testament is particularly useful in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you're you're young, the way Samuel and 1 Kings and, and the Chronicles are all kind of situated, you all feel like it's a lot of the same things, just the kings doing stuff. Sometimes stories repeat themselves. Here's a tip. First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're in Ezra and Nehemiah right now, are the great, great worship books of the Bible. They're just chock full of like, not just. It's not just about sacrificial systems and purity rites and how many bulls you have to kill on a given day. It's full of just the, the physical activity of what involves in worship, and that has very much been. Continued on throughout church history is grabbing onto those things. I mean, when a king, uh, when a king gets crowned, what does everyone say? Long live the king! Do you think they made that up in the Middle Ages? No, it's from Solomon's coronation. It's in your Bibles. And they said, well, here we are. We're a Christian nation. You know, it's it's you know, 1133 A.D. Uh, what should we all say after we count the king? I oh, know. Let's look in the Bibles and say what they said when they crowned a king. All right. So that's why we do it. It's All sorts of actions are full of that, and we carry on some of those actions. And sometimes what is, by example, in Chronicles or in Ezra and Nehemiah, in the Psalms become imperatives, they become commands. So you see people gathering together, coming in holy festival into the house of the Lord, or lifting hands, or bowing knees, or dancing, or shouting. Well, we see that exemplified by example In certain sections and then we get and then we think well was that a good idea or was that was that descriptive or was that prescriptive was that just describing what happened or is that God saying we should do that guess what the Psalms answers that for us a lot because then David tells us lift your hands sing loud come into the house of the Lord with with, with thanksgiving things like that all right third we're also instructed how to worship simply by nature and then there's, there's another term that gets used uh, in a lot of the confessions, including our own, which talks about good and necessary consequences. So good and necessary consequences is just, we have to figure out a time of the morning to meet. 10 o'clock seems like a good idea. But let's not forget that nature also instructs us out of worship. A lot of, uh, there, are, there are commands to Timothy and to Titus about conducting yourself with dignity. Um, you know, to, to women about you know, braiding hair or things like that, and we don't have to get really specific about what that means in our time, but it means you don't come in the church or frankly conduct yourself any time in life dressing like the world dressed, um, drawing a lot of attention to yourself or being immodest in some way. Um, uh, First Corinthians talks about the way in which men and women worship on Sunday morning is dictated, first of all, there's two parts of that. One, men and women should worship differently, or at least pray and prophesy in different manners, but also that nature itself instructs them on how we do that. So I'll leave it up to your own consciences and your elders how that might play out, but do business with those kinds of scriptures and think like, what is nature and my own kind of conscience suggesting I do here? All right. So, uh, so then he, so he, God speaks to us by summoning, he speaks to us by instructing, and then he commissions. So the commissioning section is, you can think about Isaiah here. Um, so Isaiah six, this is after the, uh, the dramatic and wonderful uh, part where um, the, um, the, the live coal is placed on his lips, and, he's, and, he's, and I heard a voice, of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go to the people and say this. Also in the Gospel of Matthew, there's, a, there's, a, there's this strange repeated refrain of Jesus commissioning the disciples to do certain things. And what's great about this, and we'll, get, we'll develop this a little bit more near the end when we talk about heaven responding to our worship, but he commissions them not to say like, all right, go do it, I'm really rooting for you. But he commissions us to worship and disciple the nations in a way in which heaven itself is ready to ratify the work that we do, the gospel work that we do, the work of discipline in the church that we do. so take a look at those maybe perhaps on your own time uh, those commissioning passages in, in, in Matthew we have Matthew 10:5 Matthew 16:19 that would be um, that would be the uh, great con- Great confession is that what you call that? Peter's great confession. On this, on you I'll build. You call you rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. Matthew eighteen nineteen is the church discipline section, as well as the, when two or more are gathered together, I am with you. And then Matthew twenty eight is the great commission. All right, so think about how that might work into our worship. Um, and then also we are given the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, that's another way in God speaks to us. All right, second we obey, or to use the the term, we answer. We answer. God, his summoning. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of times in which during moments of reformation of worship, they, when, they re- when they get back the law, actually, let me stop there. Before we move on to, to, to the second section, any questions, clarifications, comments about that first section, just the way, that initial way in which God speaks to us or summons us? Anything you'd like to take issue with? Like you understand. Yes, Paul.
1: You know, like, it's, it's clear that God commands us to worship. There's examples in the Bible, like you specified, but, like, it, it's almost like, you know, I don't think God just wants us to be, like, if you command your son, clean your room, you know, you can have the joyful response yeah. of cleaning your room, or you can have the, and I did this when I was a kid, you know, the kind of stomping up the stairs and kind of just doing it just because <clears throat> you have to kind of command. Right. And it seems like, you know, the Bible kind of, especially in the Psalms, it's kind of almost like in the examples that you mentioned in the 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it's almost like, an, like, a, like, a, like, okay, so God has given us all this great stuff. How should we react to it? Yeah. It seems like it should just be like a, a more like a teaching us how to be emotional versus mm-hmm. just a just command you have to follow whether you want to or not. It seems like he really cares about how he follows, and I just wanted your thoughts on, on if worship yeah. should just be like a chore or worship should be like a glad full response and how do we do that? It's based in the scripture, so it's not really a command, but more of, like, how do we... He's
0: beguiling us. He's, like, drawing us near him, and that's why... I, that's a perfect point, point. and there, nowhere on this outline does it address that issue, and I, I was aware that was a fault. The true heart of the worshiper is the most important thing in all of this. This is all about sort of, like, the outward things that are happening when you walk in the church. If your heart is dead, if it's a stony heart, even if you're regenerated but you're far from the Lord because of unconfessed sin or just sort of a lackadaisical whatever, like that is actually a far greater concern and issue with the Lord God than, than the outward things. And so, yeah, to Paul's point, like the Psalms are great for that. Um, I mean, the term I use beguiling, that's a, that's a sort of a term from, from Song of Solomon, which I think is a great also like a stirring up of our affections for the Lord. Let him allure you, draw you near to him. Uh, but you're right. Otherwise, otherwise, this is it's all pharisaical. And there, are, and the prophets prophets are just full of condemnations about people whose 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 heart, you know, you you know, the lips do one thing and the heart is far far from me. I mean, it's 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 such a it's such a danger. So thank you. So have that in there, and yeah, you know, to. Have that in the back of your mind, and also have in the back of your mind, actually put it in the front of your mind, that all summoning that the Lord God does is only through Jesus Christ. That to come, to try to obey and to hear the creation's call or, or discipleship's call in your life, and you try and you access the Lord God outside of Christ, it is to no avail. And the summoning that you are experiencing is actually the summoning to your judgment. So be aware of that, okay? All right, two, we obey. Again, in the Old Testament, in times of Reformation, it was common, in Joshua we see this, they worshiped according to Moses. This is footnote 14. In First Chronicles, again, when they reformed the worship according to Moses. Second Chronicles, um, this is Hezekiah. They reformed it according to, De- to David, to Gad, and to Nathan. But this is great. Actually, let's turn to that. So 2 Chronicles... 29, 25. Uh, here's a little pop quiz. Who knows who Gad was? Yeah, what was, okay, but tell me more. Oh, was he one of Na- uh, David's prophets Like Nathan? Yeah, remember, do you, remember where he pops up at all? I didn't know this until I was preparing this. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe, maybe with the temple worship, I don't know. He pops up after the census gets taken. And he's basically the one who runs interference about like, choose your, choose your punishment. And then he says, go and build the altar here to stop the pestilence from coming. He, it's only in that one episode, but then also he gets referenced here in twenty nine twenty five. Uh, speaking of Hezekiah, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. So this is a perfect encapsulation of the obedience. They worship according to the word that they had. They had the Pentateuch, but also recognizing that it was in fact from God that they were doing those things. Um, Ezra 6 refers to Moses. Ezra 3 refers to David. 1 Corinthians 14.34 is giving instructions on how to worship, and it says, as the law says. It's actually unclear what part of the law Paul's referring to there, but he says we are worshiping according to the law. That would be another reason why occasionally it's appropriate for New Testament Christians to look back to the law and see how might that be carried forward into New Testament worship. All right. So we obey how? By gathering in his name. That's the first one. All right. So we, t- we can, that's why we have the Sabbath or the Lord's day. We can celebrate high holy days. The, um, our confession actually says uh, solemn humbling with fastings and thanksgivings on special occasions. So that could be a, you know times yeah, Christmas, Easter, Good Friday. Times of, of church-wide confession and repentance of sin would be appropriate. Um, times of great rejoicing would be appropriate. Uh, but then also just regular worship. One of the challenges of reading the Old Testament for how to worship is that the the pictures that we get come in moments of really dramatic events. They're like generational, epochal things. And you think, that is great. We should always worship the way it was when the Ark of the Covenant is put into the, the tent of meeting. It's like, and a fire comes down from heaven. That's a tall order, all right? And we can get some of that flavor even in, regrettably, probably even some of the ways I you know, call us to worship sometimes on Sunday mornings or some of our songs. So like, um, praise the Lord, uh, sing like never before, oh my soul, that's a great song, 10,000 Reasons. You could be singing that like, sing like never before. Like, I don't know, you know, you know, uh, fall of 2003 was great. That was, I was really nailing it there. And like, I don't know, a couple weeks ago it was great. I'm going to sing like never before. Every time we sing that song has to be the best time your soul has ever worshiped the Lord. All right. It doesn't work that way. Here's one way you could actually probably think about that song. You have changed. You're singing not, like the Lord has done new things in your life. You have new reasons to be thankful. So praise the Lord. How does the line actually go? Looking at you, John. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord of my soul. Sing like never before. Well, you're singing like never before, not in terms of degree. you're singing like never before because his mercies have been new every morning, and he has had new things that you have new things to give him thanks for so that's a little maybe it's, it's all you cynical types out there. Um, when we get to that line, don't put your hands in your pockets you know think about um, think about just all the new ways he's been faithful um, Footnote seventeen uh, tells us there that so in 1 Chronicles 16, 6, this is, uh, this is actually that time when David puts the Ark of the Covenant in the tent of meeting, and he sets up all, the, all the, 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 the temple system for regular worship, for what was required day by day. And so it's a great reminder, even in probably one of the great high watermarks of Old Testament worship, that David... Has a, he doesn't say, all right, let's, let's go home and then we're going to do this all again next week. Say, like, no, we're going to go home and now we're just going to get into the normal flow and duty of, 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 of worship. All right, so we worship by gathering. We worship with words of worship. And if you just want to glance, so, so if you, sometimes it's helpful for me to kind of just look, look at how this outline is going to look. So we're worshiping, this is how we re- respond. So we're in the we obey section. We worship with, with words of worship and then bodies of worship, all right? And then within the the words of worship, we worship with reading of scripture, teaching of scripture, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, prayer, prayers, we know all the different, you can have the ACTS um, acronym there, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Words of worship with singing, singing is kind of a word thing, kind of a body thing. We worship with prophecy, we worship by creeds, confessions, vows, oaths, affirmations, and amens. Our, our church elders, um, and by our elders doing it, we ourselves in some sense signed the confession of our denominations, uh, the, you know, the, the faith this, this week. And I was out of town. I wanted to be there just to watch the solemn moment. I'm ima- I didn't see it, so I'm just imagining the solemnest thing I can, I can think of. Um, I was hoping there was people like waving, like incense things going by. But like that was like in our, in our day and age, like we don't, vows don't mean a lot. And we sort of like, we don't, we don't take those things seriously, but they are serious. And in fact, I think it connects to the commissioning and the power of the keys kind of aspects that God hears and ratifies things and binds you to certain things. So a vow and this is in our confession of faith, a vow is, some, is something you make to God, and a, a, an oath is something that you make to one another. An amen, an amen is not, again, something that we, we made up to do. It's in Scripture, and it's the way, it's the way in which when something happens from, from the front, it is the way in which the church says yes, and not just yes, but like, be unto me. It's a way like the key You ever, you know, turn a padlock in a door and like that satisfying just, I love that sound in my door. It means everything's safe. Nothing bad's getting in. All right. Like when you say amen, I want in your heart to hear a, all right. God will hold you to that. And we will hold you to that also. Uh, And then also church discipline. All right. All right. I want to have a quick, so there's an appendix B. You know it's a good talk? When there are appendices. <laughs> All right, um, and I didn't ask, I didn't tell Daniel I was gonna do this, but I assumed it was okay. I, I, I was thinking about how to, how to think about prophecy, um, and so I asked, I think one of the dangers of, of um, maybe even just, I, would, I won't even say evangelical, but I'll just say our church. Our church is, we have a prophecy, Mike. And we know what the word prophecy means or we think we know what it means because we've gotten our definition of prophecy from the world or from movies or from books or whatever. But I want us to really expand what that term means. And I think that's going to do two helpful things. First of all, just as you're reading your Old Testament, just be aware of how the word prophet is used. Does anyone know the first prophet name in the Bible? Abraham. Abraham. Tell me all the prophecies that Abraham made. Nope. Didn't do it. Who called him up? Who called him a prophet? Uh, was it Stephen, I can't remember. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Because he oh, says I you're I a, prophet. a prophet. I'm not going to touch your wife. This man's a prophet. Well, that means prophet means something different than just foretelling. And of course, that pattern is repeated a lot. Moses is called a prophet. What were Moses' prophets, prophecies? Well, I don't. Maybe, maybe they're there. Jesus is, a, is the is a prophet. now. Jesus actually did have prophecies. So. Expand your view. So Daniel, I, I emailed Daniel like, hey, are there any good like working definitions for people like us? And so he sent me this kind of email back. It's you, you as you're reading it, you're thinking, oh, Daniel was probably typing this on his phone. Um, there's some incomplete sentences and things like that. But the, the, he was kind of busy, Bill, He was busy. I was busy. Um, so he has some good quotes here. Um, also, I found a nice quote from a Scotsman called Patrick Fairbairn. 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 Um, a prophet is the recipient and bearer of a message from God, whether the disclosure of some important truth, the inculcation of an imperative duty, or a prospective delineation of coming events. All right. So, if you feel like you have the gift of prophecy, don't, I want you to feel this happy, holy weight. Um, there's, uh, in the, in the uh, hideous strength quote at the, your, your front page, it talks about, under the immense weight of their obedience, their wills stood up straight and untiring like caryatids. You know what a caryatid is? In, uh, in ancient architecture, there was pillars. You know what a pillar or a column is. A caryatid is a column or pillar that is in the shape of a statue or a man. So you've seen those, okay? So a woman or a man, and, but they're pillars, but they're stat- beautiful statues. So he's talking about, read it again with that in mind. Under the immense weight of their obedience, so God's holy commands were ordinarily, it's like, it's like this, you can't do it. Like, like with the filling of the Holy Spirit and his good grace on you, under that immense weight, You're like a statue holding up this entire temple. And I want you to think, if you feel like you have the gift of prophecy, I want you to feel both that immense weight and also the incredible strength that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up under that, okay? And not feel like you have to have some amazing, you know, go to the front of the church or like call someone out or encourage someone specifically, but just know like in your relationships, Let's look at that Fairbairn quote again. The disclosure of some important truth. When someone shares scripture with you, they think the Lord just had this on my heart and I, I feel like it speaks to your situation and, and you read it to them. That feels like a mundane act and maybe it is. Maybe someone's just sharing what they had in their quiet time that day. But like if you have that spiritual unction that you feel like you have this gift don't, don't just treat it like, I'm gonna tell you what I had in my quiet time. Treat it like, just like the sharp sword that it really is. It's not a butter knife in your hand. It is a sharp sword and, be, and wield that um, confidently and reverently. Um, all right, bodies of worship. So I've divided, uh, any questions actually or comments about uh, how we obey with words in the, in the, in the meeting? With bodies of worship, so I've divided this in the postures of reverence, postures of joy, postures of humility, postures of intercession and petition, postures of position, sacraments, and then miscellaneous. All right, we don't. You all these things kind of speak for themselves somewhat. Hopefully, just the the kind of the taxonomy and the ordering of it is useful for you in some way. I I think that would be helpful. I want us to think about. every generation and place and sort of church culture has the things that come easy and the things that come hard. And we have drums in church because God commands us to have drums in church, not because we live in a time and place where people expect you to have drums in church. I hope I hope that's why we do it, but we always have to check ourselves and check our church about why are we doing the things we're doing. Now, how would we know whether we were doing, whether we, whether, whether, whether we were lifting our hands because God commands us to, and our heart, to Paul's point, and our heart longs to do this, or we have loud worship because God commands it, or because like people just kind of like this rock and roll thing. Like, how do we know? How do we know? I'll tell you how you know. It's, it's, it's only, you only have the right to claim obedience to God rather than man in those instances to the degree in which you get to the hard parts of Scripture, the parts that the culture thinks is weird, even the evangelical culture thinks is weird, and you obey those things. You get that? Show me where our church is doing the hard things, and then we get the check the box about doing the easy things for the right reasons. That was a long sentence with some semicolons in it. <laughs> <laughs> Argue against me. You think that's unfair? Come on, Philip. Relax. Give me this is easy. Oh, okay. Drums is easy. You can walk into you know, First Baptist Church in Cary right now and they're playing the same songs we are. You think they're doing it because, well, they could be. They, they, they could be doing it because they all repented of their you know stony musical ways from that they had in the 90s or they could have just been like ah we took a survey and this is kind of what the kids want they expect they expect some um you know some Matt Redman or you know whoever now i don't know
1: and i've been in churches where they didn't have any drums and just had a piano and that was perfectly worshipable too you know it just a singing with instruments so the the drums are Nice, but they're not necessarily required. Even here.
0: I disagree, Paul.
1: You have an organ? You know, like the organ or whatever, but...
0: symbols are commanded. (laughs) And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with symbols, harps, and lyres. A guitar covers the harps and lyres (laughs) stuff, all right? (laughs) All right. Um, Well, I think that's a hard one um, because... First of all, they're doing it for terrible, ridiculous reasons. But there are, there is incense in the Bible, and whether we would consider that sort of a ceremonial thing that was done away with, but it talks the New Testament talks about like the, you know, the incense, the, the the bowl of incense, sort of before the throne of God. I think that's a perfect example of where the example of the Old Testament. In the commands, or I won't say the Old Testament, there's the examples of the of Bible for how we worship, and the commands are often overlapping. Sometimes there's a command for something and no example of it. Actually, head coverings would fit in that category, I think. So that's kind of a strange one. And then we have examples like incense or... Um, Oh, uh, Solomon is, uh, when, he, when he gives his great uh, prayer, uh, he's standing on a, sort of a, a bronze pedestal or podium. So you could read that and be like, great, now that's why we have a stage, is because Solomon did that. But there's no, there's no really command to do something like that. So I, I think that's where you have to do the hard work of, um, of doing w- what you think the Lord is commanding you. But also, pushing against, again, like who's, sometimes like if you're, if you're, sometimes like look around and see who else is doing what you're doing, and you should get nervous if they all, you know, if their genes are too tight. Um, and also by nature and good and necessary consequence. So what does nature, what does good and necessary consequence in our culture mean for using smoke? And this that, all the different kind of uh, attributes it has. Also, I would leave our church if we did that. All right. Um, <laughs> That reserved for the Levites, like the incense. I mean, we, we could say that well, our the, prayers are like incense, but we, we don't want to say, all right, we're going to make this exact thing that they made. That right. They were told you've got to do, do it just this way, and only these guys, and in this place. I mean, it was very strict and serious about how they offer the incense. That's right. I wouldn't just assume that we just pick and borrow whatever we want from the Levitical law. And I agree. I think it's, it's very easy to. It's very easy to cherry pick the things that you think are gonna be cool or you know, scratch the right itch or something like that. And, yeah. and, know, and just know who you are, know, know who your, your people are. If you're, if you, if you're an evangelical, uh, small evangelical congregation you know, in uh, like the northern Cossacks in Russia and it's like everyone came out of the Eastern Orthodox Church, like maybe like having incense at some level would be entirely appropriate because like no one's ever gone to church without incense before. But, but not here, not now. All right. Um, so postures of humility, kneeling, bowing, weeping. We've had some weeping in church recently. Um, let's figure out, like, how do, you, how do we do that in the right way? Postures of intercession and petition, the fasting. Uh, I think church-wide fasts are great. We do those occasionally. Sometimes we have home group-wide fasts. Um, i kind of taking on the honor system who's actually doing that. Uh, <laughs> um, laying out of hands, anointing with oil. Uh, postures, of position. That's kind of a, a, a strange one, but I mean, let's not take for granted the prominence of leaders in in the worship services. You know, David going up with the um, you know, Psalm 42. Uh, you know, we thought back on like leading the procession of the of the people uh, into the house of the Lord. We should. We live in a very egalitarian age. People don't like leaders. Leaders don't like leading. We. The church should not be like that. We don't. We don't put people on pedestals. We don't, you know, all, all, all those a 1,000 caveats that we have about that. But really, we actually, we, we, you know, having leaders lead us into worship is an important thing. I already mentioned the kind of the men and women distinguished um, part we don't have to get into. There's some footnotes there for your own edification. Sacraments, um, our confession of faith has some great stuff on that. Miscellaneous, um, you know, head coverings, ties, and offerings, decorum. You yeah, mentioned that already. Here's a one I want to talk about real quick: announcements, fellowship, and house to house. When does worship start? When that first glorious G chord gets gets strung? When you wake up. When you wake up. When you walk into you know, church, maybe is there a parenthetical? What about the break? It's the break from what? From worship. So we all, all right, all right, stop. Pause, pause it, to get some coffee, get the kids to church, uh, or, you know, children, or the announcements. How strange is it sometimes? Like, you ever have the strange experience when you're like in worship, like you're on your knees, like the tears are flowing, a small puddle is like falling on the floor, and then it's like, all right, good to see you, everybody. That was, wasn't worship great today. Don't forget, we got youth group tonight, the pizza's gonna be there. Now, our church doesn't do that exactly, but it can be the juxtaposition can be can be odd, right? Um, and there's ways, we, we, you know, as worship leaders, we could do a better job of, of that. Here's some encouragement. It's all worship. I want us to think about that that time, maybe the break, as a time for the one another's of, of, of worship, the, the fellowshipping, the kind of the house to house component, and the announcements that are being given are basically the instructions about how to love one another, there are instructions about how to go from house to house. That is worship. Here's another example. Um, I don't know if you all have met uh, Francois. He's from South Africa. He had this great prayer and talk at the, <laughs> at the prayer meeting last week. But I, I like meeting new people. Um, it's, it, it's, I, so I always talk to the new people. And Francois and I had developed a bit of a rapport. And about a month ago, um, he came up to me at the break And he has this wonderful accent. Um, And he said, Philip, I don't think he knows a lot of other people. I said, Philip, like, I just wanted wanted, wanted wanted to share that one of the prophecies that came forward this morning was out of a text that I had been reading myself this morning before church. And it just felt like, it felt like an important thing that those things had coincided. I just, I wanted to tell somebody. And I was like, Francois, like, like, thank you. And I don't know what that means either, but I think we should just be, be, be gratified that the Lord is with us today and speaks through his word and through his prophets. I was like, but by the way, like, I, I just feel miserable right now. And I forget even why. I was just sort of, I was just like this despondent that morning. And I was like, Francois, could you just like pray for me? And like, I don't know Francois. I don't even know his last name. Like, and like, he like laid hands on me and prayed for me and then like we all went got coffee and came back like that's what the break is for that's what the break's for that's what the break's for it's all worship all right god responds how does he respond by being present by being glorified by hearing by ratifying by blessing by punishing by forgiving being present, this is the Calvin quote on your front page. This is, in the, this is on his commentary where he's discussing the word are um, Matthew 18, which I'll just flip through real quick. So Matthew 18 is the, if your brother sins against you section. Excommunication, church discipline. Uh, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is a mysterious section, and actually combined with the other what we call power of the keys sections, the binding and loosing sections, which are all all in Matthew except for John. There's one as well. Um, They're strange. I think particularly the the Catholic church did a lot of business on these passages. These were sort of like, these were, you know how we have, you know, like on our coffee mugs, like as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Cute little, you know, phrases. Like all the coffee mugs and like uh, the Catholic church was like, power of the keys, like, Whatever I bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Like That was on their mugs, okay? And so when the Protestants came along, they didn't like that because the Catholics would keep saying, I bind you and God binds you. I loose you, God looses you. And so they didn't like it. And they did a lot of business in untangling this knot. We've inherited that suspicion as as Protestant reformers or reformed Protestants. We should also be Protestant reformers. Um, and we've married to that kind of a Western, scientific, materialistic like suspicion of sort of weird things. And to that we've married, again, this is, a, this is a polygamous marriage at this point, just sort of our own lack of faith. That's a messy knot that's not as bad as the Catholic knot, but it's not good. Let's untangle that knot and read the scriptures and believe the scriptures because the scriptures are true. And so this is what Calvin says kind of about this issue. Those who are assembled together, laying aside everything that hinders them from approaching Christ, shall sincerely raise their desires to Him, shall yield obedience to His word, and all themselves to be governed by the Spirit. Where this simplicity prevails, there is no reason to fear that Christ will not make it manifest, that it was not in vain, for the assembly to meet in his name. Disregarding the bastard and abortive councils, which out of their own head have woven a web, let Christ alone with the doctrine of his gospel be always exalted among us. Never miss a chance to say bastard in church, is my opinion. <laughs> All right. Um, and so he's just talking about there, just again, he's trying a little, little knife in, in, into the Catholics. I just love that simplicity, um, where simplicity prevails, that Christ will make it manifest. He will make it manifest it was not in vain for the assembly to meet. How will God manifest himself this morning that it was not in vain that we have met today? He will. He will be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for his presence being with us. Uh, he, He responds by being glorified. Again, I alluded to this earlier. This is mysterious. The passive sense should strike us as mysterious and wondrous, but we are not unused to holding strange things in tension. He hears. Who's ever been in a church where they've said, where there's a litany and where the, uh, where the leader will say something and then the congregation will say, Lord, hear our prayers. Yep. And they do that lots of times. Yeah, we've, we've been in those churches. Where do you think they got that? They got that from Solomon's great prayer in 2 Chronicles 7.12. Again, this is after the temple is being built. Um, And actually, the the prayer of dedication is is in chapter six, and it's long. And he goes through all these different things. Like, if this happens, if pestilence comes, and this, and this, and this, Lord, and your people pray to this house, Lord, hear our prayers. And he goes through all these different categories. There's famine in the land when heaven is shut up and there is no rain. If a man sins against his neighbor, the people of Israel are defeated before the enemy. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people, if you, if you go out to battle against our enemies and we're defeated, then, and, then we, and then again, if we pray, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And then if we sin against you, this is the last petition, if we sin against you, there's no one who does not sin. You are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captives to a land far and near. It goes on and on. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. That was Solomon's prayer. How do we know what God's answer was? Well. God's answer to that prayer is in chapter 7 of that same book, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts, and my people are called by my name, and humble themselves, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their lands. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. That's going to happen today. In half an hour, God is going to hear or His ears are going to be attentive to us and His eyes will be open toward us. Thanks be to God. By ratifying, this is the power of the keys. Now again, you're thinking, of Philip's like a lot about the power of the keys. It's because it's because I'm interested in it and I want you to be interested in it too. In the New Testament, the power of the keys happens in two primary contexts. And this is something that the, that the reformers were very eager to maintain. This, and, and, as, and as charismatics, we wanna fight against, so Calvin was, was doing battle against the Catholics. As charismatics, we're not doing battle, but we're, we're being cautious from the other side, from our charismatic brothers and sisters who are out of their minds, okay? (laughs) Um, The binding and loosing happens primarily in gospel preaching, Uh, so that would be uh, Matthew 16, 19, and then John 20, 23, and then also in the exercise of church discipline. Those would be the primary ways, sort of like the the true um, sort of essential aspects in which I think those binding and loosing uh, commissioning things happen. Um, but I do think we should, we should hold that, and that should give us confidence in our gospel preaching, by the way, that there is, um, there is heaven is eager to ratify uh, the activity that happens in those, those conversations. God hears by blessing us, by punishing. Uh, so Uzzah was punished because he touched the Ark of the Covenant, was, that was done in an improper way. Um, Ananias and Sapphira were punished in the New Testament. This is not, when Uzzah dies, think, whew, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. No, Ananias and Sapphira, a very similar situation in which they did not worship God in the appropriate way. And then Paul cautions those who take the Lord's Supper in an appropriate way, that some of them have fallen asleep and even died. So God, and that's that's not, you know, lake of fire punishment, but it is the very stern, chastisement of our Lord, that he is present in our church, not to give us what we ask for outside of his will, but he stands ready to discipline us as well. I feel like we've all experienced that discipline in church. And then he forgives. I say micro there because all who who answer the summons of our Lord in faith in Jesus Christ have been forgiven. Uh, Solomon in his great Prayer of, of uh, sort of consecrating the temple, he I love. He stands in front of the altar to give that prayer. And I think that's a great picture for us. We when we pray, we stand in front of the altar. The smell of like the cooking meat and the blood and the wine and the bread should be heavy in our hair when we go to pray. All right. So, but also we know from that psalm, but from from the First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. I just read that there is a there's a a micro forgiveness that happens when we when we pray in these situations. All right. That's that's it. That's what I got for us. There's an appendix A, which has a lot of the kind of the great worship sections in your Bible that if you're interested in where a lot of this stuff comes from, it comes from 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 from, from this. The emphasis changes. So in the Mosaic worship, a lot of the emphasis is on sacrifices, which has a lot of that is less applicable to us after Christ, but the Davidic worship is just full of joy and music. A lot of the second temple activity, which we're in right now in Ezra and Nehemiah, is focused on the the teaching function. And the New Testament worship is a bit more of kind of ad hoc instructions. It's rare that we get, it's actually not just rare, it's non-existent, that we get this full complete, like start at 10, take a break at 10.45 kind of thing. It, it assumes the kind of base that we get from the Old Testament. It assumes the assembly and the reverence and the joy and the music and the prayer and the leadership and the, the proper conduct of individuals. It assumes all of that. And then it says, by the way, I'm worried how you're doing this. Don't forget to do that. Do this. And, and so I think you should read your New Testament passages with, kind of the picture that we get in in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I had a little um, kind of, I wasn't sure how time was going to go or how how big, um, how many people were going to be here. I, I had a thing we were going to do with First Chronicles. We don't have time to do that. Uh, it is now 9.32. Uh, um, two books that have been a great blessing to me this year, Spirit and Sacrament, which I think everyone should read, and then this, Beat Out My Vision, is a little bit of a, le- less of a, front-to-back book is this um, and more of just something that can be used for daily personal worship or with your families daniel gave this to me um and this is this is really fantastic Um, also uh, d martin lloyd jones's book joy unspeakable is the fifth greatest book written um, by a christian i would say so you should read that too that's very helpful for for worship any questions or things that you appreciated about the talk? <laughs> or, or comments and things you didn't appreciate? So category, uh, how should we think about this if we're going to go through this later? Oh, yeah think, yeah, think about, so it's, it's basically um, David does it wrong. David does it right. David almost does it wrong again. David corrects himself having learned his lesson. So you can kind of figure out where, where do each of these steps in the narrative fit into God's summoning, our obedience, postures of physical worship, you know, obedience by the word, um, the amens, the assemblies. It's everything we just talked about is in these four chapters. And you see David do it well, and you see David, see David do it, do it wrongly. So that was, if, if we had gotten through it, 15 minutes ago, we would have gone through and tried to piece that together. So you talked about things that come easy for us and things that are hard. What are some of the things that are hard for us that we should practice? Joy. To get there. Joy. Um, our church, so, the, the, so Christian worship is full of great extremes and tensions. Weeping and rending of garments and tears and then dancing and shouting. And instead of holding each of those in tension and doing both of them at the appropriate time and in season with all dignity and respect and decorum, instead, we split the difference and we say, we're just gonna do mid-tempo songs with a bridge and an octave jump. Well, you failed on both accounts, and in your mind, you've done them both perfectly at the same time. So less mid-tempo songs and a minor key with an octave jump and a bridge, and more, we should get down on our knees i love it, for elders, you should command us to get on our knees sometimes. It'd be, it would be easier for people if we all did it together. And then other times, we should actually be doing this thing. This isn't hard, it's really like jumping rope, really easy. This is the 80s way, this is the 90s way. Both are acceptable, all right? And neither of them get done, because our songs don't allow it, because they're mid-tempo, uh, minor songs, and we're, we're awkward about it. So I would say those things. All right. Paul.
1: I was going to ask, like you said that all life is worship. Would you prefer that we call you like a music ministry leader or a worship leader? Because
0: a deacon in good standing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Blessings on you. Thanks. Let's get ready to worship. <laughs>